0: Hello, and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Brulty. On today's podcast, we're honored to have Harry Campbell, the rideshare guy on the podcast. Welcome, Harry.
1: Hey, Grayson. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Oh, we're super excited to have you on the SAE podcast because a year ago I was on your podcast and we had a great chat and looking forward to another great chat.
1: Definitely. Same here.
0: Harry, before you were the rideshare guy, you were a structural engineer at Boeing working on the 707 and 757s. What was that experience like?
1: Yeah, you know, I think uh, for whatever reason, I, I guess I was always attracted to math and science in high school and college and sort of naturally became an engineer. An aerospace engineer, I guess that was my formal training, as I like to say, and started working for a couple aerospace companies and spent about six or seven years in the industry. Most recently, as you mentioned, working with Boeing, and uh, I guess I would say it was something that I was always good at. Uh, But it was never something I was super passionate about. So I was sort of the type of guy that was going into work and getting all my work done and doing a good job, but finishing in about an hour or two and then working on other stuff, doing side projects, taking long lunches, basically trying not to be noticed.
0: And when you were taking those long lunches, were you dreaming about becoming one day the rideshare guy?
1: (laughs) I wasn't dreaming about becoming the rideshare guy, but I always, I wouldn't say I always knew, but I I will say pretty early on, uh, I did know that I was very interested in online businesses, digital media, creating content. I wasn't sure exactly what I was gonna do, but I dabbled in a bunch of online businesses. The first uh, blog I ever started was actually a personal finance blog. So that's kind of how I got into blogging. So by the time Uber and Lyft popped around, I I sort of had a little bit of a head start in blogging, but I definitely wasn't an expert yet.
0: Personal finance to uh, ride sharing, is that kind of just how that evolved? Then did you convert that audience you had there on the personal finance into your ride share audience?
1: No, it was actually pretty separate. To be honest, none of my early sites, ventures, projects really took off. <laughs> I made, you know, I, I did some freelance writing, I did some blogging, I did some niche sites as they like to call them, but none of them ever really took off. And I was making some money here and there, but it was sort of just enough to see that if I could find the right niche, if I could find the right topic that had a lot of interest in something that I was interested in myself and had business opportunity, I could potentially make a business out of it. And so it was actually, I have to sort of give a little bit of kudos to my wife because she was in med school at the time when we were living in newport beach and she was going to uc irvine med school and what that meant for me is that i had a lot of free time on my hands i was working a full-time job but i would come home she'd be studying on the weekends she'd be studying or she'd be working and so for me uh, i actually started driving for uber and lyft on the side sort of because i had a little extra free time and uh, very quickly learned that you know it's not rocket science being an uber and lyft driver but it is a little tougher than it looks and there are a lot of people out there struggling to understand what it takes. And so I really just started blogging about my experience as a driver and that's how things got started.
0: Very smart to give your wife credit. So kudos <laughs> to you for that. So you, you, you started learning about that. And now fast forward today, you're the de facto voice on all things ride sharing. You are the ride share guy. So here we go. I got a lot of questions about the current state of the industry. In a recent Wall Street Journal article in the Gears and Gadgets section by editor Matthew Kitchen, he highlighted the trends of individuals opting for individualized modes of transportation. Does this mean that ride sharing is a business that is about to enter a secular decline? Um, I don't know
1: that it's declining. I mean, I think that one of the interesting things that I've sort of always done over the years is looked globally to certain trends in the mobility space. And so an example of this in rideshare in the past would be sort of how Uber and Lyft took off here and no one had ever heard of it in China. And then before you knew it one, two years later, it exploded there. And sort of, we saw the reverse when it came to bike shares and even some of the scooters, um, you know, bike share was really popular in China and then came over here. So right now with the pandemic. I think we're seeing that actually in a lot of these places that are recovering, rideshare is making a comeback. And, uh, you know, people may not be riding in the same capacity that they were in the past, but, uh, you know, it is uh, it, it is somewhat, uh, you know, sort of pandemic proof and that when the pandemic goes away, people start taking Uber and Lyft again.
0: You're right about, about consumers going back to their old habits, and I believe that. I'm just not sure of the long-term growth of the business and if it can survive financially. Are you still... Driving today?
1: Uh, so these days, I... Primarily run the blog full time, the business, the podcast, YouTube channel, everything else that we do behind the scenes. I mean, I'll still get out there behind the road and do some trips here and there, but I wouldn't call myself an active driver. But sort of where I think I try to focus a lot of my time is speaking with a lot of drivers over the past five or six years. I've talked to probably over fifty thousand drivers over email, in person interviews, social media, you know, you phone calls, you name it, interview, you know, like panels, things like that. And um, you know, obviously, I. I've worked for all of these services myself too. You know, I've done Uber, Lyft, Sidecar. If anyone was around six years ago, that was one of the original rideshare services that no longer exists. I've delivered food for Postmates, DoorDash. Um, I've charged scooters for birds. So I've tried a lot of these gigs, and I think what I try to bring, and really my business tries to bring, is to connect the dots between the actual experience on the ground and for you know these actual workers and what it's like to work at these companies um, and sort of be that in between that intermediary to kind of help people understand uh, you know both sides of the equation so i do think that you know rideshare in the long term, you know, they've Uber, for example, has gotten a lot of heat about profitability and things like that. And depending on, you know, so I'm not a financial expert, but you know, if you look at their most recent quarterly earnings, for example, on an EBITDA basis, which some people have a problem with, they're actually profitable in rideshare. They lost $300 million in Uber Eats, but they're seeing a lot of growth there. So I think what we've seen over the years is transportation in itself, you know, getting someone from A to B can be a profitable endeavor. And so I think that's, if you look at more the underlying business, you know, what is it that uber is doing they're taking people from a to b that can be a profitable endeavor and so i think that there is the potential for uber you know to sort of you know their long-term i guess you would say potential in that sense does uh, is positive for me you know I, how big they'll get or how much they'll grow or all that you know is obviously up for debate
0: now that uber announced uber boat yesterday are you going to become a boat driver and, and learn about that <laughs>
1: You know what, I didn't see that actually announcement that Uber boat. So one thing that's interesting for me is, you know, over the years, obviously, Uber has dabbled in many different areas from autonomous vehicles to, uh, I guess, even Uber Elevate is sort of a separate, um, you know, venture. I know you had uh, one of their guys on your podcast, which uh, was a good episode. So people can definitely check that out. And um uh, but, but I think that a lot of times you have to sort of separate the noise from the kind of reality. Right. And so I think over the years, you know, when Uber was a private company and they were looking to raise money, it was easy for them to say, Hey, look at autonomous vehicles, this is going to completely, you know, revolutionize the business, change our, you know, change our profitability and all that. And of course autonomous has huge potential, but as far as Uber is concerned, you know, that was years away, right? It's not going to do anything to their core business in the three, four five years when they started talking about it, but it sounded great when they went to go raise another, you know, one, two, three billion dollars. Right. And so I think that that's sort of where, for me, I look at it like, all right, what, what, what is actually adding to their sort of, you know, core strengths of their business? Like what units have they figured out and what is sort of actual, you know, something that might actually help them, you know, versus just something that kind of sounds good to an investor or that sort of allays investors fears because Uber has never turned a profit, for example
0: you're right about different businesses. And, and back in November 29, uh, 2019 CNBC personality, Jim Cramer, was urging Dara to sell, 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 sell Uber Eats, get rid of the business, get rid of the business. And fast forward to the pandemic today, the eats business has surged 52% year over year to a $4.68 billion business. And now with the acquisition of Postmates, do you see Uber's delivery aspirations just growing? And is that profitable for the company? And what's the impact on drivers? Yeah. Well, so it's
1: definitely not profitable for the company. I think, uh, as I mentioned, you know, Uber Eats is their fastest growing sector right now during the pandemic, especially. But in their last quarterly earnings, they said that they lost $300 million on Uber Eats, which is, you know, no small feat. <laughs> um, it, you know, they sort of, it, it's kind of a catch 22 because it's growing faster than ever. But if you're losing money on every order, then you're losing more money than ever on Uber Eats. And I think that what we've seen over the past few years is a clear, especially since Dara took over, you know, I think there was a clear, consolidation in business units that were losing money. So uh, in their rideshare, you know, sort of endeavors in China, Russia, India, Latin America, I guess they haven't consolidated in India yet, but in all of these other markets, they basically sold to the local player Yandex in Russia, Didi in China. And to me, you know, if you know the culture of Uber, that's, you know, not a win in their book, that's giving up, right? So it's something that sort of was tough pill for them to swallow. Even if you look at it financially, like those deals, worked out great for Uber. You know, I think that, you know, some of the, if you look at Uber's balance sheet, they've got, you know, a stake in Didi now, for example, right? And they've got a stake in some of these other uh, global rideshare companies. So in that sense, there was this clear consolidation and Uber Eats, I think was kind of headed in that direction, but because of the pandemic, I think it's going to be very tough for Uber to get rid of Uber Eats right now, because if you look at the company, especially from the kind of financial, you know, sort of public markets, what do they really have going for them right now? It's not rideshare; It's kind of in decline. There's a lot of skepticism. We're really unsure, to be frank. Uber Eats, though, you can sort of point to it and say, hey, look at all the growth we're seeing. Um, You know, we're, you know, we're acquiring Postmates. And so that's going to over time, you know, with less players, that's going to mean we can now become profitable. And I'm actually very skeptical. I'm very bullish or bearish <laughs> uh, sorry um, bearish I always get those two confused um, but on uh, the future of food delivery in general because I just don't think I mean there's two things you know I think that uh, first of all, people are always going to pay more for a ride for themselves than they will for their burrito, right? And so UberX, you know, from a driver perspective, you're always going to make more on UberX than you will on driving for Uber Eats, right? And so you're competing on the labor side, on the sort of, you know, optimization and efficiency, efficiency side, which all these companies like to talk about, you know, oh, we're going to batch all these orders, we're going to make this better, we're going to make that better. There's just not much margin that you can squeeze out of a food delivery order. Most orders are, you know, QSR, which is basically fast food, you know, McDonald's and other Jack in the Box and Chick-fil-A and things like that. And the order, the average order value is just very low on these, right? So if it's $8, 10 12 and you have to pay a 2 to $3 service fee and you have to pay um, a 2 to $3 delivery fee and then you have to tip the driver another few dollars in fees. This is sort of what everyone makes fun of that, you know, when you add up all the fees and you don't have a subsidy or a discount, um you're not able to act you know, you know it's like more than the cost of the food. And I just don't see how they can get a lot of those fees down, you know, Uber has talked about batching orders and things like that. But just as a quick example, you know, when you batch two food orders, uh, you know, unlike an Uber pool, right, the second person just gets there a little slower. The second person who gets their food now gets colder food, right? This is fast food. It's got to get there quick. <laughs> it's literally in the name, fast food, right? Um, it's not slow food, 30 minutes, 30, 45 minutes. And that's really the KPI, the, the metric that all these uh, delivery companies care most about is from when you place that order, how quickly can the food get to you? So. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just a little skeptical in general uh, on the prospects of that side of the industry. But obviously, some companies are still worth a lot and raising a lot of money and doing a lot of orders.
0: You're you're right about the fast food and the the fast casual being delivered, but it comes down. to It's not necessarily how fast it can get to you. It's about the packaging. When the French fries get to your house, are they crispy? If you ordered a hamburger, is it warm? Is it cold? And that's where packaging comes. And I don't feel that there's been enough investments in really good packaging to keep the food hot. I know that Postmates was doing some experiments with Domino's down in Miami of how to get the, the pizza, but I don't feel that we're there yet. You, you Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, I think that's the stuff where I think there's actual probably, you know, if if they started making those arguments that, oh, we can, you know, work on the actual consistency of the food or the packaging, then I'd say, oh, you know what, I don't actually know a ton about that area. But, you know, I've heard stories, for example, I know there's companies that are actually working or thinking about the way that they do package fries. I heard a story on this a year or two ago, um, and it was pretty funny, but it's also, you know, kind of a, a true issue, you know, like, how do you get these fries to arrive at a customer's house nice and crispy? And so, you know, I think that they do have opportunity there. Um, so I could very easily be proven wrong, but I think that, you know, like a lot of, uh, to me, it's still a high risk, high reward bet. You know, for me, it's not a sure thing, you know, DoorDash, for example, I think is just raised money at a $16 billion valuation. That's great for them. But I think that's a very high risk. It may end up being, you know, worth that much. But I think there's a lot that has to go right. And, you know, if I was sort of had to bet one way or the other, I would take the under right now. Even though I, I, I'm a huge fan of all these services, I, I use them all the time. Um, and obviously, we kind of cover them and sign up lots of drivers for them. So I would love for them to succeed, but I'm also realistic.
0: <laughs> succeeding is what we what we all want. And the DoorDash valuation is, is high, and they're getting ready to file for an IPO later this year. But I look at you have an independent delivery company that's doing fast casual, fast food, Then you have Instacart that's doing um, grocery deliveries. And then I look at the larger corporations and this week, Walmart announced the $89 delivery. They're going to compete with Amazon prime. They're going to call it Walmart plus, but then in in that $89 was included same day grocery delivery. Walmart has the logistics centers around the world to do that. Would you see Walmart when they formally introduce Walmart plus with groceries and their grocery business is the fastest growing segment inside of Walmart. Do you see that kind of chipping away from the DoorDash's, the Uber Eats of the world since Walmart is such a trusted brand with an incredible distribution network across America? Yeah, well, I actually put
1: Instacart in a separate category from DoorDash and Postmates and Uber Eats because grocery delivery, like you said, is actually, I think, more of a logistics business than sort of an on-demand business, right? When you order groceries, you don't have to have it within 20 minutes, right? Usually an hour, two hours, or maybe even a few hours, or even next day is okay. Not many people are ordering, you know, uh, a day in advance, a hamburger from McDonald's, right? But people do do that with groceries. And obviously there's some variability there. And even when you look at the company during this pandemic, Uber Eats has seen a ton of growth, but they lost a ton of money. Instacart is seeing a ton of growth. They actually made money though. (laughs) So I think that sort of structurally speaks to the differences in the business and the opportunities really to squeeze out margins. And that's sort of what I am always looking at from my perspective coming, you know, talking to couriers, working with couriers and understanding from the worker's point of view, right? And, you know, even from the customer side, that's sort of what I try to bring to this type of analysis. So on Instacart, for example, you can see that um, when orders are run, or sorry, when item they have, basically API type partnerships with a lot of their grocery chains now. And that's improving over time. They didn't always have this. And so at the beginning, when items were out of stock, for example, it was a nightmare because now the shopper has to, you know, text Grayson and say, Hey, you know, they, okay, they don't have this. And then Grayson doesn't respond for a few minutes and then you're already on the other aisle. And then you have to go back and it literally can double, triple, quadruple, or maybe more the time um, that that shopper has to take. And, you know, in a lot of these on-demand services, labor is the biggest cost, right? Uber spends 80% of, uh, you know, the passenger fare basically on paying the driver, right? That's why all these companies want to go autonomous. They want to get rid of the workers or make it as efficient as possible. And on Instacart, you have that ability. Now, you know, you, you may have even noticed this on the customer side, when items are running low, they'll prompt you to automatically pick a replacement so that if I'm that shopper, I'm now seeing. Okay, um, you know I need to go get green grapes, but they're out of it. But Grayson said that it's okay if I get red grapes instead, for example, right? So now I can kind of quickly go through that, and I think there's just a ton um, of opportunity. A lot of the actually grocery delivery companies in China are doing, again, you know, kind of doing a very good job of this. In that, uh, you know, I've heard uh, that some of these companies are actually kind of shifting to more of a Walmart model, which I don't know a ton about Walmart, but you know, I have read the book by Sam Walton, which I think we, you and I, actually have talked about, which is a yes, great we do. book. Um, and but the thing is that, you know, in China and other places, they're actually sort of creating these micro warehouses, right? So if you're an Instacart shopper and you go into Ralph's, that's fine, but it's not designed or delivery only right it's not designed for picker pickers and you know delivery right it's designed for like the average consumer so you could imagine you could actually get a warehouse in a cheaper part of town and you could put more items into a smaller amount of space and every time that courier came in or every time that picker you know maybe they only, you know so instacart uses this interesting model where they have full service shoppers who will go in get all the items and then also deliver it to you but then they also have Shoppers only, and they have delivery only, right? So that's a pretty small part, that sort of segmented aspect of their business. Most uh, couriers or, you know, so most of Instacart workers are shopper or sort of full service shoppers. But you could imagine in the future, you now start to see they've got all these opportunities to actually make the system more efficient to batch orders. Right. And really, you know, just the the fact that, um, you know, I think you have so much opportunity there and they're already profitable. You know, if I could invest money right now in Instacart, I would, I would gladly uh, gobble up some secondary shares because I think that they have sort of a, a bright future. And, you know, just from what I've seen on, on my end.
0: So there's a lot of things I want to dive into here. You're right about micro warehouses. One of the largest owners of warehouses now in America, it's a private equity group led by Steven Schwartz and Blackstone. They've been buying up warehouses across America. Pretty incredible now. And then Instacart, I remember when I lived in New York, we had Instacart and they would mark stuff up for $5 and I didn't want to pay the fee. So I got out in the snow and went there and picked up my items. Is Instacart still doing that model or how are they making money today?
1: Yeah, I'd say that, you know, honestly, a lot of these companies are still kind of experimenting with the, the business model. Um, it's usually a combination of a markup on the item. Sometimes they're getting uh, sort of even fees. You know, you might have even seen there's actual sometimes advert kind of like featured products in the Instacart app that they might even be getting paid for. Um, so I think that they're working on a number of options because on the grocery delivery side, you know, the Ralph's, the Kroger's, the Vons, the Safeways, right, all of those companies. You know, they're actually sort of in a similar spot, I think, as a lot of these uh, restaurateurs that are kind of complaining about the app delivery companies and saying, hey, you know, their fees are too high, especially in grocery delivery, where, you know, again, I'm not an expert, but I know the margins are very low in grocery delivery. And so you can imagine if you have this third player come in, it's just going to cut into their margins. And I think a lot of them are wondering or, you know, sort of questioning, is this a good deal? And this is actually, I think, really interesting phenomenon because it's very common in in the sort of future of mobility space, right? You have, you know, a lot of OEMs, for example, that see the future of mobility. They see Uber and Lyft and they say, oh, we gotta get in on this. We don't know what the hell we're doing, but we gotta do something, right? And so they just start throwing insane amounts of money at projects that, you know, have no chance of success or really just don't fit into their business line. Or they sort of, for example, like the most common thing I've seen in my area is companies will take whatever vehicles they have and sort of try to thrust them onto rideshare drivers, not thinking about, you know, what company, or, you know, what type of vehicle makes the most sense for rideshare drivers. It's more like, hey, what, what cars do we want to get rid of right now? <laughs> and then they'll do, go do some big experiment or test with Uber and Lyft drivers and say, oh, well, that didn't work. You know, there's no, there's no opportunity for us. But their sort of experiments were doomed from the start. And so I think it's really important for a lot of these companies to kind of understand what their strengths are and where... These companies can add uh, value, whether it's, you know, on the grocery delivery side. Is it new customers? Is it expanding the radius? Is it off peak hours? You know, I think there's a lot of creative things that are happening, but you sort of have to understand the landscape that's out there instead of just kind of doing something to do something.
0: And you're starting to see con- consolidation in the space. Web push securities analyst Dan Ives said the following in the Wall Street Journal this week. Uber's back is against the wall to do a deal in the food delivery, given the consolidation phase has kicked off. They're at the prom looking for a dance part, and there's only one really left in the room. It's Postmates. What are your thoughts on Dan's statement there?
1: Yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, Uber, I mean... The trend, you know, in food delivery, I guess you would say again, right, because all of these companies are unprofitable. So it was sort of obvious that they were going to be, you know, going out of business or more likely, you know, merging, combining, being taken one, taking over the other. And that's sort of what we're exactly what we're seeing happening. Actually, I mean, it kind of started last year with DoorDash buying out Caviar. And then most recently, you know, Uber Eats try or Uber tried to go for Grubhub, but then uh, Just Eat Takeaway, which, uh, to be honest, I had never even heard of before this announcement (laughs) um, kind of swooped in and took over Grubhub. now Uber is purchasing Postmates, so there's a clear kind of macro trend of consolidation for the reasons that you know we've already talked about. But I think that uh, kind of what it means is that basically, you know, the companies I think understand right that they're very unprofitable right now, but they're also you know sort of com- there's there's a ton of competition right now, right? And so you know if you log on if you've logged on to the Postmates app for example in the past one two three months, you know the reason how I knew they were gearing up for a sale. Every single time I logged in as a customer, there was a $3 discount, (laughs) okay? It was a you know spend fifteen get three dollars off and I'm like whoa you know Postmates loves to give dis- you know all these companies love to get discounts but it was just sort of funny on the courier side we saw similar bonuses and incentives so you know it was kind of funny uh, to see that but I think that a lot of that stuff can start to disappear and they can sort of start to trend in the direction of trying to get profitable because right now I think frankly the food delivery companies are not even close so this consolidation allows them to kind of stop compete stop they need to sort of you know on a unit economic. Base, Basis, right? If they can stop spending the same marketing dollars, you know, Doordash and Postmates stop spending for the same customer. Obviously, they both sort of win in that sense, and I think that's what some people have commented. You know, that Doordash um, is kind of the market share leader in almost all of these cities, so they kind of benefit from this uh, takeover too. <laughs> so it's sort of interesting. You know, even though Uber spent the two point six five billion, I think uh, Doordash is definitely a direct uh, recipient of the the benefits too.
0: What happens to the drivers in all this consolidation?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, both, both, uh, customer, I mean, I guess on the customer side, I would say that customers have sort of been getting an amazing deal, <laughs> whether you realize it or not on rideshare, on food delivery, no customer has been paying the true cost of food delivery. I mean, really ever. And, uh, in it's still expensive, right. Which is again, one of the reasons why I'm skeptical of, uh, the food delivery space because no one's actually paid the true cost. It's sort of been, you know, all of those uh, late night burritos that we've been ordering have been subsidized by VC. So on the, customer side, I think it's going to get more expensive, but it's also going to be more reflective of the true cost of, you know, delivering a burrito and involving multiple parties. That's an expensive proposition. There's not, there's no getting around it. You know, if you kind of want a Chipotle burrito delivered by some person, it's going to be expensive. (laughs) There's not much you can do about it. But on the driver and the courier side, I think uh, it's again, you know, not great. Um, Most couriers kind of report making about 10 to $15 an hour before expenses. Most rideshare drivers are A little higher, more like 15 to 20 an hour before expenses. And so, on the courier side, you know, with consolidation, I think that allows the companies to, you know, uh, offer less bonuses and incentives. That's a big thing on the courier side right now. You know, you have a litany, excuse me, you have a litany of services that you can work for Caviar, DoorDash, Postmates excuse me, all of these different companies. And, you know, obviously as consolidation happens, you know, DoorDash and Caviar are still operating independently, but at some point in the future, they could combine. And same thing with Uber Eats and Postmates, or maybe just the bonuses go down, right? And so I think uh, income will go down. And when you kind of combine that with the pandemic, I mean, we have a lot of rideshare drivers that are switching over to delivery right now. You have a lot of just unemployed people. There's 30 plus million unemployed people. uh, I believe 30 or 40 million unemployed people. And if you don't have a job and you have a car or some form of transportation, uh, you know, gig economy is sort of built for a recession. I mean, that's how Uber and Lyft and a lot of these companies were born. They are born out of a recession where people needed quick, fast, flexible access to cash. And so when you have an excess of supply, again, you know, the companies can pay couriers less. So, uh, you know, unfortunately on the courier side, I think it is kind of a bad thing. Um, you know, they will likely, uh, I guess income, I would say, will be driven down, right? Because why would the companies pay more than they need to?
0: You said driven for a, a recession, and that's a perfect segue to AB 5, which Governor Newsom signed in September 2019, which requires businesses to hire workers as employees, not independent contractors. There's a lot of political heat going on in AB 5. So I want, we'll start at the top. What's the perspective from the, the drivers? Are drivers for AB 5? Are they against AB 5? Yeah, and I think that
1: for anyone who isn't familiar with AB5, like you mentioned, you know, it was signed, I guess it was signed, it went into law on January 1st, 2020, and obviously it was kind of passed and signed before then. And basically what it says is that, uh, you know, basically all of these Uber and Lyft drivers and frankly, actually gig workers and extends to a lot of other industries. There's been a lot of heat that the legislators have faced because I think this law targeted uber and lyft drivers but actually ended up applying to everyone and so there was sort of a lot of uh, you know kind of friendly fire, or not a friendly fire, but, you know, sort of (laughs) casualties, right? Um, Because of that, and that's a separate topic. But what it means is that, you know, it's very difficult now um, for you to go in. And if you look at all the legal requirements to say that drivers are not employees of Uber and Lyft, right? If you kind of go through their ABC test, if if they're operating independently, if they have the ability, you know, to set their own fares and run their own business, are they doing the same business as Uber and Lyft? It's literally like they're driving people around. And so it's very hard to argue. Against that, even though Uber and Lyft have, you know, kind of staunchly said, okay, you know, we're a technology company, we just connect riders and drivers. And basically, what's happening is that, um, You know, so the companies, uh, you know, do not want to abide by AB5. They don't want to classify their drivers as employees in California. And if you know Uber and Lyft, and especially Uber, I would say they're very stubborn. You know, when they kind of feel strongly about something, they're going to kind of fight like hell. And that's exactly what they're doing. So what's happening is that uh, they have a ballot initiative going uh, onto the ballot in November here in California, I believe it's prop 22. They're also making a number of changes to the driver app to sort of bolster their case and I'm happy to get into any of these, but I just sort of want to set the scene in case anyone isn't as familiar. And then we can, you know, I'll I'll start talking about the, the driver's piece of it because what's interesting is that, you know, I've been doing this now for five or six years and this was a big debate early on and it sort of went away for a little while then came back and then went away and now it's back into the forefront and so it's been interesting to see the shift in uh, you know frankly like political narrative but also you know how legislators and the companies and drivers are thinking about it and what i'll say is that you know most drivers do not want to be employees when you think about the nature of and honestly i don't think that should be that surprising most drivers you know so when we've surveyed and uber and lyft surveys have corroborated this about 60 to 70 or 70 to 80% of drivers are actually doing 20 hours a week or less and so what that means is that most people are casual most people are part-time it's not their full source of income they may be combining with social security they may have another job they may have a spouse that's working they may be retired right and so they're not dependent on this income but of course it's very nice for them to have and they you know they're driving because of the money and so most drivers you know enjoy the flexibility right if you've worked any frontline, any service job i mean i've done over 15 or 20 different jobs in my life and uber and lyft are far and away the most flexible Um, it is amazing how flexible they are and most people don't even take advantage of the flexibility but just the fact that if i wanted to leave this interview right now and i mean i could i don't even need to leave the interview i could literally while we're talking turn my uber driver app on go online and as soon as i get a ping say hey grayson i gotta go and go do a ride once that trip is over, cash that money out to my bank account instantly with a feature that Uber has called Instant Pay and have seven, eight, nine, ten bucks in my bank account. There's not a single other job I would argue in the world that has that flexibility. And like I said, most drivers don't use it in that way, but you do have that ability. And so I think that's what drivers are very scared of losing that flexibility, if they were to become employees, you know, drivers have, you know, that, that 80% that wants to be independent, they have plenty of complaints about Uber and Lyft. <laughs> you know, if you talk to any driver and ask them what they think about Uber and Lyft, it's usually not great. To be honest, um, satisfaction numbers are pretty low, there's a lot of turnover. But Even with all its faults, I think they would prefer to be independent. And, you know, for the drivers that are working 30, 40 hours a week or more, though, the challenge for them, they're a smaller part of the driver population, maybe 20% or less. They actually work a total, uh, you know, a majority of the total hours on the platform, sort of like your typical 80, 20 rule, you know, these 20% of full-time drivers are doing 50 to 60% of the total hours on the platform. And they're basically working like employees, but without any of the benefits, and those are typically the drivers, you know, without health Care that are sort of the sole breadwinners in their family. So you really can't blame them, in my opinion, for wanting to be employees for Uber and Lyft because they don't get to, you know, log on whenever and wherever they want. They have to work all the busy times. They sort of have to do their schedule. They still have some flexibility, you know, more than working at McDonald's, but, uh, you know, not much.
0: Why is driver satisfaction so low?
1: Um, I mean, I think, you know, to be honest, I think it sort of stems from a couple things. I think in general, the company, you know, Uber sort of leads the market. Um, you know, there's obviously Lyft, but, you know, Uber is the market leader and, uh, I think that really what happened is Uber was kind of a customer centric company from the get-go, right? Travis and the co-founders were guys who, you know, they weren't taxi drivers fed up with the system. They were guys who wanted a better way of getting a ride, an easier way, you know, a baller way of getting a ride, a black car. Right. And I think that just sort of propagated down through the company over the years and definitely it's not to take away. I mean, there's many people, there's hundreds, if not thousands of people at Uber that I've, you know, talked to a lot of them that really care about the drive- experience. But I think at this point, it's a bit ingrained in the company that the drivers sort of come second or even third, you know, after passengers and after the, you know, sort of needs or wants of the company itself. And I think it's really tough to now change that, even though I think a lot of people at the company have recognized that. And over the past few years, to Uber's credit, they've worked on a number of initiatives to improve satisfaction. Um, But I think that it's tough because, you know, so that's a, a big reason it's sort of ingrained in the culture. And then second, I mean, let's not forget. Like, this is basically a service worker, you know, a frontline, whatever you want to call it, type job. It's a tough job. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, if you're doing it 5, 10, 15, 20 hours a week, it's not that bad. But the more you do it, you know, like with anything, sitting in a car for 40 hours a week is a pretty tough job. I think traditionally across the service industry, there's high turnover, right? So um, Uber also is, you know, kind of falls into that category. Like I'm, you know, uh, pretty biased in that, you know, I think there's a lot more they could do to really make the experience great for drivers and sort of make it all, uh, you know, you know, roses and sweet, (laughs) sweet income everywhere. And maybe they won't go that far. But I do think that You know, for those two reasons, it's kind of gonna be tough for them to uh, retain, but you know, there is still definitely opportunity for them to improve. And that's sort of what I care about. You know, I think that I kind of joke sometimes, if you let drivers set the rates, they'll price themselves out of the market, right? You don't want to give drivers full control, but I think what the issue has been is that Uber has had full control over the years and they've sort of just taken too much advantage. They've had a little too much power. So I would like to see a little bit more of a balance. And frankly, that's kind of what regulators are recognizing too. And that's why a lot of the political will has shifted. You know, that's why AB5 was passed and New York City has a similar minimum wage legislation and other cities and states are looking at this um, because Uber has kind of had power for too long. And I think they've kind of done a poor job of sharing that power. And now regulators are sort of stepping in and saying, hey, all right, we need to take a look at this because you guys aren't doing a good job. And I think, uh, you know, whether you agree or disagree with that, I I think most people would agree that that's the job of regulators. That's why they're there. And, um, you know, that I think that's also, why uber and lyft are kind of fighting pretty hard uh, to you know not have to comply with ab5
0: they're fighting hard and on june 24th the california attorney general um filed a preliminary injunction ordering companies to immediately classify their drivers as employees obviously as you know um uber and lyft are appealing but if if uber and lyft and this injunction goes through and they immediately have to qualify and uber lyft and doordash say you know what We're done, California. We're done with your politics. We're ceasing and assisting all operations in the state. Effective immediately. How many jobs would that immediately kill overnight, would you estimate? Yeah.
1: So I think that there's actually a few hundred thousand drivers in California. So if you sort of look at it from that perspective, it's a lot of people, you know, California is their biggest market. And that's probably why you would kind of take one step back and ask the question if they would actually leave. I think that I'm skeptical that they would actually leave California. One of their I mean, literally their biggest market, probably three or four of their top rideshare cities, um, you know, especially at this time that they're a public company. I don't know that, you know, public investors would have the faith that, hey, we'll, we'll pull out here to sort of teach them a lesson. But we're also, you know, again, right, if if they're making money off of rideshare, if they're doing a bunch of, bunch of rides and getting revenue, that's all going to go away, right? And so I think it might, I think it'd be pretty tough, to be honest, to pull out of California. They may definitely threaten. And, you know, I wouldn't, say that it's an impossibility that they would pull out of California, but I do think, um, you know, it's on the table. I just think it's unlikely. And, you know, to be honest, though, I would be very surprised if we got there because I think what happens a lot of times and what I've seen directly in this mobility kind of rideshare space is that there are a lot of different legal, um, sort of political and even practical outlets that Uber and Lyft have to fight AB5. Okay. AB5 comes out. It says drivers need to be employees. Uber and Lyft say, let's put a ballot initiative. Okay. If that doesn't work, let's change the driver app so that it makes it seem like drivers are more independent, right? So that when we go into a lawsuit, we can argue that. We lose that. Let's do an appeal. We lose that. Let's take it to the, you know, Supreme court, right? I think they have a lot of legal, um, practical and political outlets that they can tap. And this is really good. This is kind of what they're good at. You know, they haven't lost a big fight like this in many years. They did sort of lose a fight in New York last year for minimum wage and, um, some cruising requirements. So again, right, like I said, the political will is turning on them a bit. But I think this would be a huge blow. And they're sort of honestly, I think they're pulling out all the stops to fight AB5 right now, spending a ton of money, a ton of resources behind the scenes. Just, uh, we're about to publish an article right now about, um, you know, some features that Uber is releasing that basically, you know, kind of are directly related to AB5 in California. So there's a lot, uh, a lot at stake.
0: Because if they don't get ahead of AB5 and, and make the Attorney General say here's the attorney general. He doesn't want to force the law. He wants to bankrupt hundreds of thousands of people because he cares about politics over people. You've got a heck of a political argument there.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing that, sorry to interrupt you, but I think that's the thing that's challenging is that in a lot, you know, I mean, in any political battle, right, there's, they're going to, both sides are going to be stretching the truth. But I think Uber's argument is going to sound a lot better in advertisements and, you know, ads and lobbying and political, right. And, you know, there, there may be a kernel of truth in each thing that they're saying, but I do think that there, you know, if, if I had to bet, I think that they sort of their case sounds better on paper, if that makes sense. Even though it may not be the reality,
0: it sounds better on paper, and they have data to go on. Look at the, the millions of jobs that every year that are leaving the state of California. And the reason why I'm, I'm pressing you on this is because there's rumors circulating, and a lot of um, gamblers and in Vegas is all is betting that um, J- Senator Biden will pick Kamala Harris to be uh, his running mate. The reason why that's important is on July 3rd, 2020, Senator Senator Harris tweeted out the following statement. We cannot allow giant gig corporations to exempt themselves from providing essential protections and benefits to their workers. I urge Californians to join me in standing with these essential workers by voting no on Prop 22. She becomes the vice presidential candidate on Biden's ticket. AB5 and Prop 22 becomes a national issue. Now Uber's got to spend a lot more money to fight this along with Lyft and DoorDash. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think actually a lot, if not all of the Democratic, uh, you know, sort of nominees over time, you know, I guess, you know, went before uh, Biden sort of emerged as a front runner, uh, were actually tweeting and sharing their support for either AB5 directly or strikes that were happening from Uber and Lyft drivers and other gig workers. So I think it's actually on the Democratic side, it's sort of the um, party position that they're in support of gig workers becoming employees. And I think it's interesting because it does sort of put them at odds with the tech companies who are also, you know, based in San Francisco, uh, who don't want AB5 to pass. And so that's one interesting dynamic. And this actually kind of popped up in 2016, not necessarily with uh, President Trump, but more when, um, you know, we didn't know who the Republican nominee was going to be and who the Democratic nominee. There were some stories that came out about, you know, I think Jeb Bush took an Uber ride or, you know, sort of stuff like that, you know, and then talking about all the issues that went there. And I kind of had a feeling that it might become a national, you know, this employment issue might become national. It didn't end up really taking center stage in 2016. But for the reasons you mentioned, you know, with Kamala Harris, uh, sort of being from California, I think that that could be an issue. And I think that in that case, um, you know, it, you know, like with anything in politics, I think it'll probably become pretty polarizing. Um, But uh, I think what's interesting is that it's sort of this, you know, democratic position. But when you actually go and talk to a lot of the drivers, they're not all necessarily in support of it, right? It's sort of like the party position doesn't necessarily line up with what the actual drivers want. And I think that's what is so tricky about AB5, about Prop 22, is that You're sort of basically saying that, Hey, we want the 15 to 20% of full-time drivers to have more benefit than the 80%. And I haven't seen the pro, you know, AB5 supporters, the people who want to be employees, they're not making that argument. They're sort of saying that, hey, everything's going to be fine. We're all going to be employees. You're still going to get to drive whenever and wherever you want. And that's just not true. I think there's actually a real life example in New York City where they now have to pay minimum wage to drivers, which I think is a good thing. I think there should be a ceiling, or sorry, uh, an earnings floor because that better aligns the incentives of the companies and the drivers that, you know, the companies aren't going to just let you go dwaddle in the suburbs, you know, and get no rides and make no money. They now, you know, if you do that, they're going to have to pay you. (laughs) Right. And so it's sort of, they kind of have to force you to drive when and where it's busy and there's a, a bit of a scheduling system now. But it's not completely, you know, uh, rigid like a lot of other jobs. And I think that's a good thing, even though, honestly, a lot of New York City drivers don't like this, I think that's a fair trade off that you lose some flexibility, but you now can't earn less than the minimum wage in that city. That's something that benefits every driver, in my opinion, versus something like AB5, only 15% of drivers actually don't have health insurance. So if you're one of those 15%, holy moly, that's a huge issue, right? Health insurance is very key to, you know, sort of the the success, the health, the happiness uh, of your family, right? And so you can imagine for that 15%, it's a huge issue, but for the 85% of drivers who are now going to kind of have to pay for that, (laughs) you know, it obviously is going to come from somewhere, right? It's not, um, you know, kind of a a game where you can kind of just, everyone makes more money and nothing happens. The, The thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that this is a marketplace, right? There are drivers, there are riders, you know, if you pay drivers more, that money has to come from somewhere, right? Uber and Lyft, you know, it's easy to point to them and say, oh, you know, Uber has $9 billion in cash, right? But um, they also, you know, if there's only three people involved in these transactions, drivers, riders, and Uber, right? And so, uh, you know, if you charge, if you pay drivers more, that money has to come from either Uber or riders, right? And so I think that you have to also start thinking about the second order effects, which, you know, frankly, makes this, uh, you know, confusing and complicated, which uh, like a lot of issues in life.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but when you look at Paying more. There's a lot of riders in certain markets that are willing to pay more. But the one thing when I speak to them, they want a consistent product. Does Uber or Lyft ever get to the point where they just call it the A tier or the first class tier, where you're guaranteed a certain type of vehicle and that ride is double or triple and more money can go to go to those drivers that drive you? Do you see anything like that ever happening? Yeah, I mean, I
1: think it's tough to say. Honestly, I think that right now, you know, if you think about the evolution of the product, it's really interesting because Uber, you know, Uber X, let's say Uber X and Lyft, you know, when they first came out, all you had to do was hit one button on your phone, request a ride a car would come to you. You'd get in, you'd tell them where you want to go. They would have to enter it into their GPS. I don't know if people remember that (laughs) Um, because now you have to enter it yourself and then you could get out. You didn't have to leave a tip. There was no option tip on Uber. Um, You could leave a rating if you wanted, but you didn't have to, right? So it's literally one button, right? And that's kind of what made Uber so popular with customers. If you fast forward and think about it now, you open the Uber app, All right. You got to think about where the, you know, which car do I want to take? There's UberX, there's UberXL, there's Uber Espanol, there's Uber this, there's bikes, there's scooters, right? There's, I'm not even picking between, you know, cars anymore. I'm picking between different modes of transportation. Now I have to enter my, um. My destination in California. They're now testing a feature where drivers can set their own rates, and so uh, as a rider, you could request a ride for seventeen dollars, and no driver wants to take it, and then it gets passed around to a bunch of other drivers. So you might get another request, and it'll come to you as a passenger. It says, "Okay, this is cost twenty-two dollars. Do you have twenty seconds to accept or reject?" Oh, reject. Okay, now you have twenty-four dollars, right? And so they're adding a lot more complexity on the rider side, um, but I think that they're still sort of trying to figure out, you know, what are the segments that kind of make the most sense where we can do something like what you described, Grayson, but at the same time, they have all these issues. I I think their kind of number one issue right now is solving this driver AB5 issue. So a lot of the changes that are happening in the app are first, I mean, they're thinking about the riders, but I'd say that they're prioritizing the driver experience in a way that kind of makes them more independent, right? So they understand that they're going to sacrifice some sort of uh, you know, friction, there's gonna be a little more friction on the passenger side, probably going forward until this AB5 issue is resolved, but it's kind of worth it for them to not have to classify drivers as employees.
0: And on the opposite side of friction, we have the one company we haven't spoken about yet, Amazon. Amazon recently acquired the autonomous uh, vehicle startup Zoox for 1.2 billion. And I got some insight and we'll, we'll get into it here in a few. Brilliant transaction for all parties involved. What are your thoughts on the Zooks transa- transaction for Amazon as it directly relates to? Ride sharing.
1: Yeah. So I actually tweeted something out the other day when I heard this announcement. I, I don't know if you saw it, but I was kind of joking, but I was like, who's Zooks? Right? Because
0: <laughs> <laughs> I responded to you.
1: I know. I mean, I've heard I'd heard of them, but it's just it was funny to me, right? Because they're sort of one of the lesser known players. But I mean, they're still, you know, a billion or multi-billion dollar company, right? So it's pretty funny to think about in the autonomous space. You know, and of course, if you're very heavily involved, you know who they are. But even for someone like me who's, you know, very involved in the more general ride share and mobility space, it's like, oh, I kind of forgot about those guys so this is good timing for this question because i have been researching them lately i've listened to a couple of the interviews that they've done Uh, jesse uh, the cto went on recode and also the Autonicast and kind of talked about it and you know i think what um you know to kind of answer your original question before i went off on my tangent talking about my twitter if if anyone wants to hear good twitter rants they know i they can follow me at the rideshare guy on twitter but uh what was the original question you asked me before i went on my twitter rant
0: I like Twitter rants because they're good. We, we <laughs> talked about, I, I For the record. I did respond to your Zooks tweet because I talked about their brand value. What are your thoughts right. on Amazon as it relates to the Zooks acquisition directly yeah. related to ride sharing?
1: Yeah. So I think Amazon is another, you know, kind of like what we talked about earlier. Amazon obviously has their core business and their core products, but they see mobility, you know, they're obviously very heavily involved in delivery, right? In logistics. They've not done anything really in rideshare. They've done a bunch with Amazon Flex. We've got a bunch of articles on Amazon Flex. It's actually a pretty popular service among couriers doing Prime Now packages and groceries and restaurant delivery. And so they've dabbled and tried and tested a lot of different stuff in the kind of mobility logistics. Um, you know on-demand kind of space. I think the biggest categories though are sort of rideshare um, and then food delivery and also, you know, kind of what they're already involved in, in the kind of logistics package delivery side. Right. So I think for Amazon, it's a pretty cheap, you know, bet for them relative to their market share <laughs> or their market cap. And, uh, they kind of, it's kind of like, for me, it's like, okay, this is their first foray into rideshare. And I think that it was e- the, the easy assumption was that, oh, you know, they'll use these Ux cars to do delivery and, you know, something like that in the future. But I'm not actually convinced of that. I think I think this is much more of a rideshare play. And I'm even more convinced of that after listening to a couple interviews with Zooks's founders. And I think you have to really understand, right, put yourself in the shoes of a founder, right? These guys are you know involved in a lot of fundraising and acquisition and you know they're looking for the right partner right you never know how things are going to work out right but you want someone who kind of aligns with your mission and your vision and if you really understand zooks like this was a company that's literally like their whole shtick is that they're trying to design a rideshare autonomous vehicle from the ground up right cars today are not designed for rideshare. They're not designed for autonomy, um, right? And that was their whole thing. You know, we're going to make these kind of four. You know, they call it more of a carriage, right? With four people facing themselves, right? No, no steering wheel and all that. And so I think that that you know it just wouldn't make sense. You know, if Amazon went in and said, "Hey, we want to use these for Prime packages," and they're like, "Oh, that's." Totally antithetical to our the entire mission of the company and the thousands of people we've recruited to work here and the you know the countless hours right that could end up happening but I think this is a clear rideshare play um, and you know I haven't thought a ton about how it fits into their overall business but you know you can see some natural synergies right like between you can imagine if you're a Prime customer you now can take you know an Amazon rideshare in the future right so I think that there's a lot of potential synergies but they're definitely I think um, they've played it pretty smart because I, you know, personally have been very skeptical of the immediate benefits of autonomy. I think that a lot of the companies uh are, you know, there was obviously, I think there's been over $18 billion of investment in the autonomous space. And I kind of joked the other day, I was like, well, what's the break-even point on just paying drivers, you know, $18 billion, right? <laughs> I think it's gonna be, you know, and we're not even at, you know, full autonomy, you know, autonomous rideshare vehicles. So I think uh, there's a lot of considerations, but I do think that it's, uh, you know, Amazon's an interesting company to watch because they sort of waited and let a lot of people waste a lot of money and then kind of came in got a good deal and now you know when things are sort of like starting to you know it's like hey it might be a few years when they're actually you know waymo is actually doing driverless rides for the first time in phoenix you know and without a safety driver and um you know i think that a lot of these companies are you know it's within it might still be a year two three years but it's within reach now whereas five years ago i think it was more of a pipe dream
0: so i'll i'll tell you what amazon's doing from having known the Zooks founding team since the firehouse at stanford and we'll get that in a minute but if you look at Amazon's ambitions, they did the thing around L.A. with Hyundai. That was at four or five years ago, where you could, they would deliver the Hyundai to your house, and you can try and see if you wanted to buy it. So Amazon's been running a lot of car experiments for purchasing. So I can tell you that, and I know this for a fact, that Amazon is going into the ride-sharing business. Uh, Jeff Bezos is personally well. They bought Zo, so. it's it's not. It's not for delivery. <laughs> Bezos yeah, is personally I involved. Yeah. Uh, they, are, they are going full steam ahead, and you're going to see some really special stuff come out of there, and you will see Tim Kentley Clay's vision be- become a reality. The interesting part is when Amazon finally unveils the Zooks vehicle, which is amazingly cool, by the way, mm-hmm. do they bundle that into a tier of Prime? That becomes really, really interesting to me. That's the big unknown. Say for you have Prime at $99, then say for $299 or $399, you get unlimited autonomous rideshare. Yeah. Do you think we'll ever see bundling like that ever come?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think actually the sort of smartest autonomous strategies are the ones that are kind of less fully vertically integrated, right? I, I don't like the Uber strategy where, you know, I mean, I guess now they've got some partnerships, but it was like, hey, let's develop it all ourselves. We've got the customers, we'll do this. Because I think you have to really understand, especially in logistics, like there are, Um, each one of these areas are kind of a ginormous business in itself. Rideshare is a business. Vehicles is a separate business. When Uber got into Uber exchange and started trying to lease out cars and vehicles, they lost $400 million. Okay. (laughs) They did a pretty poor job. Um, when a lot of these scooter companies, you know, kind of went from the tech to real world operations. Lost a lot of money, lost a lot of scoozers, caused a lot of havoc. I think there's still a really interesting business there and it's totally off topic, but I think you have to really understand what your core competency is and kind of then, especially in the autonomous space partner with the companies that make the most sense. So, you when you look at it with Amazon's perspective, they've got the customers, they've got the cash, right? So they're a great partner for a company like Zooks that's working on the technology to develop, to develop a ride hail, autonomous ride hail platform, but has literally never done a single ride with a paying passenger. Right. And so Uber has a huge advantage on them there. Um, and all the data and everything that they've gathered there, but, uh, but, um, you know, Amazon has a customer. So I still sort of think that there's that interesting ride share piece um that you kind of have to meld together and that but that's the thing you know with zooks they could sort of start off slow you know it's going to be geofenced in certain areas and kind of grow from there but that, that would be one thing that i still think they're missing a bit is that i think there is a lot of value in understanding how a rideshare company works i sent out a little another again one of my tweet storm rants um about all the things. You know, I'm not an expert in autonomous vehicles. I mean, I know probably more than the average person about the technology and all that, but what I do know a lot about is running a rideshare company, you know? So once you get that autonomous technology, how do you pick up and drop off passengers? Are you gonna pull over in a red, you know, in a red zone and get a parking ticket like a lot of the Uber and Lyft drivers? Are you going, you know, cause in downtown San Francisco, there's nowhere to pull over. There's nowhere to pick up. There's nowhere to drop off. How, if you can, if you have to follow the law in, in order to be, you know, approved to drive on city streets, I'm assuming that they're going to make autonomous vehicles follow the laws. You you tell me, right? I'm assuming they're not going to let you break laws. Um, So it's going to be, you know, if you drive legally in San Francisco, you're never going to be able to drop off your passenger. You're going to drop them off two miles away from their destination, right? So then that means, okay, now we have to work with cities to build out pickup and drop off infrastructure. Who's working on that right now? Lyft and Uber have huge public policy teams that are working on all these issues right now. So it's just, you know, like a small example of something that's very simple, but requires a lot of manual input today that a driver can handle, you know, with, you know, like any driver can handle that. There's no training. There's nothing that you really need. You just figure it out, but it becomes this huge complex problem. And that's just one, And we haven't even talked about, you know, how to handle a puker in the back of an autonomous vehicle either.
0: (laughs) I don't think we really want to talk about that because I don't want to know. (laughs)
1: it happens but again right it happens though and so you can kind of imagine like there are a lot of disputes actually between drivers and riders you know drivers are doing fake pictures of puke and riders are saying you know that they didn't puke when they did puke and so kind of imagine okay now you have an autonomous vehicle are you going to put cameras in that and then okay is that's like a potential privacy issue do they record passengers when they can only access the footage like if i'm a rider i don't want to you know autonomous zook's car recording me um are you going to rely on self-reporting? No, one's going to self-report that they puked in the car. Are you going to wait till the next passenger calls for a ride? They get in and see puke all over the seats. That's a terrible experience for them. Um, you know, are you going to build a sensor into the car that's solely for the purpose of detecting puke? That sounds expensive. What about the people that, you know, try to, you know, get a little frisky, which is also happens not frequently, but happens in the back of an Uber, right? There's a lot of these interesting challenges that I think Uber and Lyft and actual rideshare companies have data on. So I guess, you know, in kind of summarizing, that's the one piece that, I mean, I think they can gather that data, but I do think Uber and Lyft have a huge head start. So if Uber goes out and partners with some autonomous vehicle, they've got the companies, they've got the insight into running a rideshare fleet, you know, I think they have a big leg up uh, because that, you know, I see the autonomous piece as kind of a commodity product. There's so many people working on it, um, you know, and kind of when one person gets it. It's not going to be long before everyone else gets it.
0: So what happens now to Lyft? So Uber obviously has a big leg up on Lyft. Lyft is a smaller company, doesn't have a big delivery business. It seems like it's it's the do-good company with no real path to massive growth and massive profits. Does somebody come in and acquire Lyft? Yeah. So
1: what's funny to me is that if you think about Lyft on its own, it is a massive company, right? It's a multi-billion dollar company. But when it's in the shadow of Uber, it's like this tiny little puny, you know, like it's like not even like Pepsi to Coke, right? It's like, you know, AW Root beer is how people think of it often. <laughs> and even though I love AW root beer, to
0: be honest. It's, it's good. We've got to make like a root beer float.
1: Yeah. I, I do root beer freezes, but um, yeah, that's that's a different topic. And so I, th- I think that Lyft is interesting in uh, in that sense. Of, yeah, like I could see like an Amazon, Lyft, uh, Zooks even type partnership in the future. And I think that Lyft, you know, if you if you think about their, uh, if you listen to the people talking about their autonomous strategy, they're much, you know, they kind of have to be, they don't have as much cash as Uber. They have to be a lot smarter. I think they've been a lot smarter. They've done a couple partnerships. You know, they've got this one um, in Vegas with Aptiv where you can kind of basically ride an autonomous vehicle with a safety driver in Vegas. But, you know, they're sort of starting to get some, you know, some action and kind of get some feedback and things like that. And so they're testing some of these things. So I think that they have... uh they're definitely, you know, a great partner. I don't know that you necessarily have to acquire them to work with them, but, uh, I think that they would be, you know, obviously a a great partner because I mean, there's really only two big rideshare companies, Uber and Lyft. There's some smaller ones, but, uh, you know, if you're looking for sort of that national presence, I think that they bring a lot of strengths to the autonomous discussion. If I was in the autonomous space, you know, I would definitely be looking at Lyft either as a partner or acquisition. There's a lot of opportunity to work with them in my opinion.
0: They bring a lot of upside, but then they also bring the AB5 battle. Where if you're building a true level four, level five autonomous vehicle, you don't have the AV, AB5, which which we talked about could be a very big issue.
1: Well, but AB5 would kind of save uh, the companies, right? <laughs> um, you know, if they have drivers and then they need to get rid of driverless. And you know, honestly, I don't know. I think with the AB5, it's 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 tough because so the Dynamex decision that actually was the impetus for all of this, right? Was a 10 year court battle, right? So just to put things in perspective, like these things usually aren't worked out over a matter of one to two years. It's more like a decade, right? And in startup and in mobility, a decade is a long time. A lot can happen in between then. So, you know, I think it's. You know some of this stuff. Like they're obviously thinking about it, and it's on their uh, their radar, and it's on their game plans and their you know longer term strategy. But it's not like the thing that I think they feel. I don't. I don't know. It, it may be somewhat of. It. They may say it's an existential threat to the company, but I, I don't know that they really feel uh, that strongly about it.
0: I can tell you that um, Bezos feels strongly about Uber. In a May 2019 interview with CNBC, Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi told host Andrew Ross Sorkin that he's building the next Amazon and Uber. But I have went on very good word. That didn't go over well with Jeff Bezos. and He said, we're Amazon. Nobody builds the next Amazon. So based on that, that Intel, do you think that we see Amazon build their own platform or does Amazon acquire Lyft and shut down the ride sharing part of the business?
1: You know, the thing is, I think that... It's tough with some of the, I don't know. I mean, I'm sort of very much on the outside now, if I'm looking at like Amazon and Jeff Bezos, I think that these guys, you know, they're, they definitely have this sort of, you know, even Elon Musk type, right. They kind of have this, uh, you know, they've obviously been very successful, but they also have this sort of aura or feeling. And I even saw it with Uber and Travis Kalanick early on, right. Like these guys all kind of think that they can do it all themselves. And I you know, if I had to bet, I think that Bezos and Amazon probably will do it themselves, even though in my opinion, I think the smart bet is to go and, you know, work with a Lyft or even work with an Uber. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of, you know, speaking of Uber CEOs, you know, I've interviewed Uber CEO, I've interviewed other ride Hail CEOs, you know, I've interviewed a lot of these guys and talked to a lot of the executives and a lot of the people. And the one thing that comes up over and over in Rideshare and even in a lot of the scooter companies is these businesses are really tough. You know, I think that people don't realize just how much manual input operations, customer service, right? There's so much that goes on behind the scenes. And as a customer of Uber, you get in, you get out and it's like, wow, that was pretty simple. That was great, but there's so much that goes on behind the scenes and it's just so expensive, right? So those are the two things that a lot of those folks always tell me that it's a lot tougher than they thought and a lot more expensive. So I think the smart move would be to partner with some sort of ride hail platform. And frankly, there's, you know, there's Uber, there's Lyft, there's via, and there's a couple smaller ones, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Amazon and, you know, especially Tesla kind of try to go at it on their own, realize it's a little tougher than they realized. And it either takes them a lot longer to do it on their own, or they end up kind of, you know, uh, kind of succumbing and partnering with someone.
0: Yeah, v is a, as a very, uh, interesting company for the record with consolidation and changing consumer behavior. What is the future of the ride sharing business? Hmm, that's a good question.
1: So, I think the future, I guess, in the near future with the pandemic, I think that it's sort of, you know, is going to be a a lot of work to get back to normal, but I think it's very doable to kind of get back to normal. And I think the future is a lot more partnerships, whether it's public private, whether it's with micromobility. I think that, you know, a lot of there's only so much. Uber and Lyft rides that you can do. And I think we're starting to see a lot of the negative externalities of too many Uber and Lyft rides. When there's 50,000 Uber cars on the streets of LA, um, you know, they start to cause some issues, right? (laughs) They start to cause more traffic. They start to cause more pollution. They start to get a lot more tickets because they're always double parked and making illegal U-turns and things like that, right? Which we all kind of like to joke, but is also very uh, true. And so I think we're seeing a lot of the negatives, but I think what's so uh you know compelling about rideshare to me is that they are a very important part of the future of mobility, right? Like the future of mobility does not exist without rideshare, without people giving um you know other people rides. Like the future of mobility could very easily exist without people owning their cars, right? So I think it's going to be a very important part of the future and so I think we're going to see a lot more partnerships. We're going to see a lot more you know, kind of creative ways, you know, because I think a lot of these companies do have that ultimate goal of getting people out of their own personal vehicle. And that's sort of the overarching goal of transportation of a lot of the people who work at autonomous companies, a lot of the people who work at bike and scooter companies, a lot of people who work at Uber and Lyft, a lot of people who work, everyone, it's kind of everyone's goal now that I think about it. Um, but no one mode is going to replace the personal vehicle. So I do think a lot of these companies are going to have to work together. And, you know, especially with kind of confined space and growing populations relatively in some cities and some places now, uh, you know, I think that that's what, uh, we'll see with rideshare and, uh, yeah.
0: That's a brilliant segue to wrap up this really insightful conversation and I'll, I'll, I'll I would like to leave it with this. What would you like our listeners today to take away from them from our conversation?
1: So I think what I would like them to take away is that, you know, A lot of times in mobility, transportation, logistics, I think it's easy to get caught up in the macro views and the analysis and the sort of, you know, cool parts, what's going to happen in the future. But a lot of times I think you can actually learn a lot by just talking to the people on the ground, whether it's, I mean, literally the people on the front lines, right? Like I see a lot of these programs and, you know, things decided on and designed in boardrooms, and then they get onto the streets and they're total crap, right? (laughs) And so I think. that, you know, a lot of times, like, I think it's good to sort of be skeptical and take things with a grain of salt, but at the same time, just leverage that firsthand experience, right? If you really want to know about what it's like to be an Uber driver, it's pretty easy to go sign up and do it yourself or talk to, you know, Uber drivers. If you want to kind of get in on this, you know, understand autonomous vehicles, like go be a safety driver, you know, go talk to safety drivers, right? And they're the ones who I think can really kind of balance what you're hearing. They may be, you know, and, and again, right, like I said earlier, like you don't want to take what those folks say with, a you know, 100 Percent either, right? You kind of want to balance what the front lines are saying in real world with kind of what you see on the corporate or what you hear some executive on a podcast talking about, and then kind of find, probably meet somewhere in the middle. And I think that that's kind of what I've really built my business around and trying to balance, the, you know, the conversations with the executives, but also with the conversations, you know, with the $15 an hour Uber driver who is, you know, telling me, you know, all of these negatives and, you know, the, the executives who's telling me, like, oh, every driver loves the platform, right? And then kind of understanding, okay, where's that disconnect? Okay not every driver feels that way and why um, and really kind of connecting the two and that's kind of what I I think is there's a lot of interesting problems and opportunities there to solve
0: I mean Harry thank you for this this wonderful interview and as we've uh, heard on this podcast the future mobility does not exist without ride sharing and I can't thank you enough for this completely awesome well-balanced interview and discussion and where can the audience they want to get a hold of you where can they find you how can they get a hold of you
1: Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It was a lot of fun. Asked some good questions. So a lot of questions I've never answered before. So you made me think. Luckily, I already had my cup of coffee. And if people want to find uh, me, I mean, really, if you type the rideshare guy into any box on the internet, I should pop up. But uh, I'm probably most active on Twitter. And uh, just a fair warning, I tend to offend a lot of people on Twitter, but uh, I talk a lot, but have a lot of uh, hot takes. So you can find me on Twitter. I also have a podcast of my own called The Rideshare Guy that's uh, really focused on a lot of very similar industry issues. Like you mentioned, you were a guest and we kind of interview really anyone at the intersection of rideshare and mobility. So that touches autonomous delivery, um, virtual kitchens, really anything, uh, that intersection of rideshare and mobility. And uh, at my website, therideshareguy.com.
0: Yeah, and if you're interested in the rideshare business, I uh, highly recommend um, Harry's The Rideshare Guy podcast. It's a, it's a great listen, and Harry, thanks again so much for coming on. This was an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Rason Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn.
1: SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.